Children may be dismissed. Quietly. Okay, we're going to be in Ephesians 2 today, so if you want to grab your Bible and open there, I encourage that. We're going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Before we begin, I want to point out, I'm not Jacob, if you haven't noticed, Um, just continue to pray for him. Um, There are two kinds of people that are listed in in this text we're about to read. I want you to, uh, as we read, um, envision who they are. It, it'll be very clear. I think, I think you can handle it. There's two types of people in this, in this text. One person is of the natural mind, the natural person, the person who is uh, thinking, living, breathing in the way that they are naturally. They live according to the world. We know that sin entered into the world through one man. That was Adam. And because of that, because of that, the curse of sin has extended to all people who would uh, come forth after Adam, which is everybody. The whole world. The whole world was changed. Nature itself was changed. The, the, the landscape changed. The, the life of animals changed. Everything that had the breath of life in it uh, changed. And that includes us. Mankind changed. The way that we reason, the way that we think, it's, it's separated from God. The way that we, we try to even approach God is, is altered because of the curse of sin that we are born with. Born into the curse of death. Uh, all people bear it. All people bear it that, that you're born... And you're also going to die. That you, you've come to live and you've also come to, to die. We all bear it. We all understand the need for God. Every person who has ever lived understands that there is a need for God. That's why you see so many different religions trying to make sense of the world. They may not know who God is. Romans 1 says that. They, know, they have knowledge of God, but they suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. That's what Romans 1 says. They understand the need for God. They worship something. Everybody worships something. And we suppress the truth in in unrighteousness in our natural state. Um, I think of a... uh, Okay, so I've recently gotten really into grilling. I'm a big fan of it. And my wife's probably cringing so hard right now. But I've learned also how to sear a steak perfectly, where you, you, you get it going for like 30 to 90 seconds on one side, and then you move it 90 degrees to a different hot part of the grate, and you get those sweet cross sear marks, right? And it's, it's, it's great. It's life-changing. It makes the steak taste better just because it <laughs> looks better. Um, but that's what we do when we when we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What we are doing is we are searing our consciences. We're, we're searing our consciences in the ways of the world instead of the ways of our Lord. It it locks it in. It's there. It's present. It's there. 
So that's the first person that we see. The person who has seared their conscience against the ways of God. And we see the second person. The second person is blood-bought. They've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. They are changed. Their, their entire existence is now uh, under the blood of Jesus. They reason differently. They think differently. We can approach things that may not make sense to us in faith saying, God could certainly work out something like this. Something as unbelievable as a perfect Savior dying and then not staying dead. God can do something like that. The blood-bought person doesn't hate like the world. They don't, they don't think like the rest of the world. Their life's completely turned around. And it's not their own doing. They cannot do this themselves. You cannot, in and of yourself, completely change your nature. You cannot change your nature. You need someone to do that for you. The one who made you can certainly remake you. So let's see what God has to say in Ephesians 2. If you would please stand in honor of God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of, of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them let's pray God you were you were so good you were so good to your people uh, even though we don't deserve it God we thank you for uh, your word revealed to us You've made yourself knowable. So, Father, as we, uh, as we sit under this, under this text, we, we pray that it would bring the weight that it carries uh, to our hearts today, Lord, to our souls, to our very spirits. God, I ask that you do the work. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So the first verse here says you were dead. You were completely dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in, what you, in which you once walked. It's a little tongue twister for me. can't say it. 
In fact, it says that you basically belong to Satan, that you are a child of Satan himself, that in your natural state, you were dead in your sins. There was nothing good that you could produce, that you were dead. We're all born with this lineage. There's a lineage of we're following the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. All people. All people. If you are under the sound of my voice today, that includes yourself, that we were all once under the prince of the power of the air, following him, following the course of the world. What are the tendencies of, of natural man, of, of mankind in their natural state? What, what do we see? I mean, we could watch the news and find quickly exactly how the natural man is. It's not good. It's not good. I've, I've made it a personal uh, goal to... Uh, most of my social media now comes from like positive news sources and not even like world news. It's just like, oh, that is a cool video of this dog who loves their owner, you know, stuff like that. Because that's so much easier to watch than what's actually happening in the world. Um, even this week was insane and none of it's fun. But we see the tendencies of natural man. If you're a believer today. Think of the way that you used to be before you knew Jesus. The way you used to live before you knew Jesus and the way that you live now. You might even look back at the way you used to live and cringe at that. And that's hard to think of uh, that. Like I used to do those things. I used to talk like that. I used to, to think of these people in that certain type of way. None of that's fun. But if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic or a non-believer, how satisfied can you be with life as it is right now? If you would, uh, if you want to flip with me to Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, um, I could read this whole thing. You should read this whole thing as well. Uh, I'll give you homework. Seven and eight. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Our nature is at odds. Our nature is at war with God. As we naturally stand apart from Jesus, the way that we are, we are even haters of God. Our mind is completely limited by our nature. Our freedom to choose anything good is limited by our broken and fallen nature. What I want you to see here is that for this worldview, for the person who is not a believer, you can have no hope. There is no hope to be had for the non-believer other than maybe hell won't be that bad. That is the only hope for the non-believer. Where do you find meaning and value as a non-believer? 
Where do you find meaning for yourself and value for yourself? If you were just a cosmic accident, a, a, a sack of meat that just exists, uh, cosmic space does that accidentally came together in a universe that did not have you in mind, how can you derive any meaning if we're just bumping against each other? You have to manufacture it or borrow from a worldview that can account for that. There's a, uh, and it's not all bad, so don't, don't hear me say this, but there's a, a self-love movement that is, that is out there right now. And again, it's not all bad. You should be able to have dignity and, and value within yourself. You should be able to see those things. Uh, but if you see a lot of it, it, it gets kind of bad. Like, I am perfect and nobody could say otherwise. Stuff like that. It's like, maybe you're not. Sometimes I think maybe I'm the problem. But if you stop at verse 3, this person, this is the first person. If you stop at verse 3, you'll see that there is no hope that you could bring for yourself. But then let me take you to verse 4 where uh, possibly the two best words in Scripture exist. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The hope that you can't have in your natural state is clearly demonstrated in Christ. Any hope you have in yourself is a false hope, but any hope you have in Christ is an assured hope. What God did is he broke our nature. Gave us a new one. Said your, your old one was no good. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a new one. Here's a new nature, a new heart, a new self. We get hope here. It's what God did in Christ, and he was... He was doing something really cool here. He wasn't just saying, all right, you're good now. What he was doing instead, he raised us up with him and seated us, seated us with him uh, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He was setting his glory, his power, his godness on display for all to see. He's saying, look at the way you once were. Look at the way I have made you now. Look at how great God is. That's the, that's the point. The point is God is saying it's not because of anything within you. It is all within Jesus. Everything Everything good that is in us is because God said, I'm going to display my glory in you. His mercy, his grace, his kindness, all these things. Paul says that they are immeasurable. You can't, you can't put a value on how, on how great they are. It is only uh, because that is who God is. God himself is perfect. God himself is, is infinite. So God breaks our nature. If you want to see something kind of neat, 
Um, verse 5, you're going to see a change. Verses 4 and 5, you'll see a change from, from, uh, from verse 1. Uh, verse 1, it's you were dead. You, person, were dead. But in verses 4 and 5, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together. Uh, in your natural state, in your natural mind, apart from Christ, the, the hope that you have is within yourself, and that's where it, that's where it dies. It's where it lives, and that's where it dies, is within yourself. But the hope that Jesus brings, the life that Jesus brings, is a collective hope. I've heard Jacob say it before, that, that you have more in common with a, a believer that, that you've never met that lives in China than you do with a relative of yours who hates God. This familial connection that we have together was the purpose of Christ. He wanted us to, bring, to be brought into the kingdom as a family together. We've been grafted into a family. Uh, scripture even says that we are co-heirs with Jesus. That we're in his kingdom as co-heirs to the kingdom. It's like God's almost bragging. Like, Look how great I am. Should be our outlook. Our sin was so great that it needed a great remedy. It needed a perfect remedy. It was so great that we don't even deserve it. Scripture says that God is slow to anger, but it also says he is just to judge. And that's what makes his grace so great is that he is just to judge, but he gives us his grace and mercy despite ourselves. Four through seven, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He knows all the things you've done. He knows every thought you've had. He knows all the secret things that you do that you don't want other people to know, the things that you keep tucked in the, in the pocket that you say, don't come out because people might see who I am. The thing is, God sees that. God knows who you are. And in Christ, what he does is he wipes those things out. He allows you to put those things to death. Uh, there's a old dead church guy it says be killing sin or sin will be killing you i like to say old dead guy because i forgot his name <laughs> but be killing sin or sin will be killing you mortify it kill it the thing is jesus does that he's in the business of it he's done pretty good eight and nine for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't do this on your own. You cannot be brought to Jesus on your own. You have nothing to offer. I have nothing to offer Jesus on my own. It is only through the work of Jesus 
that there's anything good in me. I'm going to take you to Romans 4. Y'all, if you don't know, uh, Ephesians and Romans, I mean, they're both written by Paul, so it, 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 this, it's almost like a uh, like sisters, brothers, brother and sister, siblings. It's almost like they were written at the exact same time because they go together so well. Um, first few um, verses of Romans 4, we talked about this in Sunday school, and it's fun. Um, it's about Abraham. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham believed the promise of God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. It wasn't because uh, yeah, Abraham was about to, to uh, have, a bunch of, you know, have a bunch of kids, you know, you number the, number the stars in the sky. It wasn't because of the goodness that, that was in Abraham. It was because he believed God, and then the grace of God was given to him and counted Abraham as righteous. He believed the promise of God. That, ha- that is how people have always been saved. That is how people are still saved, is by believing the promises of God. It has never been about works. Clearly, Abraham, thousands of years ago, believed the promises of God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let me flip back before I start preaching the wrong chapter. So, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved for God's glory. If you've ever heard heard of the the five solas of, of the Reformation, that we're saved... Um, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. For the glory of God alone. That God gets the glory in anything that we do. It's all, it's all for Him and it's all by Him. And we get to live as a people changed by that. But it doesn't end there. We're not saved by the things that we do, but we're saved in order that we can do good things. We're not called to be a people who uh, just sit on our hands and not do anything. This faith, this faith that you've been given, this new life you have been given, it costs you something. And it costs you not sitting on your hands waiting for things to happen. This is an active faith, a faith that, that goes out uh, off your couch or out of your office or wherever you spend your time. And it's out with the people. We have to do something. It is the will of God. God prepared them beforehand. Before before you took a breath. Before you took a step. God had things prepared for you to do before even then. It is the will of God that we would do things. We're We're not a faith. Christianity, it's a religion. People might say it's not. 
It is. Um, but it is a faith. We have a faith that is not lazy. People give their lives for it, even today. But what we are called to do is we are called to carry the gospel to the people who do not yet know it. There are people groups, their entire languages. They don't, have a, they don't have a Bible in their language. They don't have scripture. They've never heard the name of Jesus. Right now, uh, uh, with the deacons and, and uh, pastors, we got a text, or it was from Jacob, but it was about how many people are right now, at this exact moment, um, not in church within five miles of the church building. There's a lot of people in Elgin, guys. It, it's a small town, but like it's a small town. There's so many people. Right now, um, according to a survey, there are about 10,000 people not in church, and their response to, to do you attend regularly, they strongly disagree, I think was what it was called, or extremely disagree. That there's 10,000 people that are not just not here, but they're actively hostile to being here. Like, not going is what they're saying. We're not called to just sit here. We're not called to, to get to church, the church building on a Sunday morning, maybe a Wednesday night if you're feeling good. Say, Jesus is great. And yes, he is. And then you go home, you go to work, and nothing else looks different. There's 10,000 people that are, if they were to die right now, Within five miles, like you could walk to their house. The Great Commission is uh, his command and it's your permission. If you're waiting on permission to go tell someone about Jesus, there it is. It's his command, like he's commanding us to do it, but he's also saying, yeah, here you go, do it. Like, just do it. So we have to do something. And in order to do something... You might think, well, I don't, like, I don't have all the answers. Feeling kind, of, feeling kind of timid about it? I get that. But you don't have to have all the answers. You have one answer, and it's a pretty good one. It's that, well, here's the way I used to live. Here's the way I live now. And Jesus is in the middle of these two things. There you go. That, that's, that's your answer. And they might, you, know, you might get a... Rebuttal. Well, how do, you, how do you account for this and that? And you, you don't need an answer to tell someone about Jesus. You don't need to answer that to answer that objection. Because their, object, their objection is to Jesus. It's not actually to the thing that they're talking about. Their objection is to actually just Jesus. It's to God himself. So you don't need to have all the answers. But what you will need is you will need to guard your life. You need to guard your your life, the way that you live, you need to guard your doctrine, the way that you think about God. Doctrine matters. It absolutely matters. What you think about God affects the way that you live. It affects the way that you might do ministry. It affects the way that you talk to people. It affects the way that you preach or, or what you preach about. It affects all of that. And here's the thing. Those need to match up. Your life and your doctrine, they need to match up together. We have to continually call out sin. Because here's the thing about knowing which doctrines are correct. Um, there's a guy, his name is uh, Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament scholar, world-renowned 
He's up, uh, last I checked, he was at the University of uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Big time New Testament teacher up there. Uh, books, books galore, is an atheist. Does not believe. One of the renowned New Testament scholars doesn't believe a bit of it. You can know the answers, but your life needs to match what you know. So I'm calling you to live upright, to live in, in a Christ-like manner. So then you might say, how do I start? How do I start doing things? I want to be active. I want to have an active faith. What do I need to, to do for that? Well, here's the thing. Just tell someone about Jesus, what he's done for you. Tell someone you know. Tell a family member. We know, I could, I could say, name the family member you know right now that is far from God. And like, there's someone in your mind right now. Like a million in my family. Not really. But I, I could tell you, I could tell you a handful. They don't know Jesus. Nothing in their life matches that, at least. And maybe they do. But again, nothing in their life matches that. So I don't know, but I got a good idea. So we're doing this Blaney 500 thing. And um, that's, that's the main reason I wanted to preach on Ephesians 2 today is because we come in broken. Something happens. Jesus happens. And then Jesus sends us out. It's a, it's a picture of the Great Commission right there. So Blaney 500 is our effort, our effort to um, have 500 gospel conversations as a church. Uh, we want to be able to reach 500 people uh, with the gospel. What that means is we're telling 500 people as a church about the gospel. There's, I don't know, maybe about 100-ish people in here right now, if I had to give a rough, a rough count. So tell five people, and like we've done it. We could, we could uh, bust the scenes off this goal by March um, if we just do it. But success is not in the outcome. Success isn't in whether someone comes to know Jesus through our conversation. Success isn't uh, whether we pack this church out every week. That's not going to be how we define success. The way we'll define success is have we had gospel conversations? Have, have, has the name of Jesus been on our lips carrying it to the people, carrying it to the nations? It's not on the outcome, but it's on the input. It's faithfulness. God takes care of the outcome. According to this, God takes care of the outcome. He says he's prepared good works for you to do. So that's what we're called to do. We're called to put, put the work in. God takes care of the rest. Um, what I think is going to happen with this is I think we'll crush the goal. I think we'll crush 500. Um, but what this is going to show is it's going to reveal... Blaney Baptist Church's uh, heart for the lost uh, is going to reveal our hurt for the damned. And it's going to reveal our desire for Christ and the people who are given to Jesus. Like we're going, uh, John 6 says that there's a people that has been given to Jesus. He says, all, all the people the Father have given to me, Jesus says. We are called to go get them. We go tell them about it. And let the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting. We're just saying, hey, have you heard this name, Jesus? That's our, that's our part. Um, so the, 
the Baptist Collegiate Ministry at uh, South Carolina got a new director recently. And I was able to have um, had like a youth pastor lunch thing a while back uh, at some point last year. And I was able to, like, I, I just happened to sit across from him and was just talking to him about how he does ministry and things like that. He's a solid dude. His name's Adam. Um, but he does a lot of one-on-one outreach. So he'll, he'll meet students because there's a lot of people that go to Carolina, and sadly. And he'll, he'll meet them. And invite them to lunch. And then what he's, what he's worked out is he'll invite them to lunch, ask them their story, uh, and then tell them about Jesus. And what he's figured out is he's done it a lot. He's like, yeah, uh, on average, you know how averages work. He's like, on average, about 1 in 28 people uh, will, will make a profession of faith through these conversations. And you could either be thinking, wow, that's a lot of lunches. Uh, that's a lot of people. That's one person a day for February. <laughs> for three years. He talks to 28 people, and on average, someone makes a profession of faith. And, you know, there's people that know Jesus, and there's people that they might think they know Jesus. We could talk about that for a while, but I'm uh, coming up close on being halfway done. (laughs) We don't need to worry about the one. It is not our job, it's not our duty to worry about the one person that might come to know Jesus. Our job is to go to the, the 28. I'm just using that number just because it was in front of us. Uh, the 28, the people that, that we could just talk to, that's the ones we worry about. Jesus is going to take care of the rest. So um, I'm talking to you. I'm telling you to get busy, to get to work. I'm talking to myself too because I, to, I need to be more active and being uh, engaged in the community. Because it's easy for me to have gospel conversations because I'm like, well, yeah, I do that every week. I tell a bunch of middle schoolers, like, hey, this is who Jesus is while they're, like, trying to kill me. So I'm talking to myself, too. I need to be more active and telling people about Jesus. I think we all do. So the gospel says that even though we were dead, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God has made us alive with Christ Jesus. We've been given a new heart. The person here today, maybe, that doesn't know Jesus, this is the truth of the gospel. I say truth of the gospel because it's true whether I believe it's true or you believe it's not true. It's just true. The truth is that Jesus really did come to this earth He really did live a perfect, sinless life, and he really died, and he really rose from the dead. And what we get is if we place our faith and our trust in him, if we repent of sin and throw ourselves upon him, we could too be saved. And in this this way, while we once walked in these ways, while we once followed the, the, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, while well, we once walked in that way, uh, Jesus takes all that upon himself. Jesus takes the sin of, of all who believe. He takes them upon himself in that if you would believe, if you would repent, you get the full righteousness of Christ credited to you. In the way that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, 
if we believe that Jesus really died and rose, repent of sin, we get the righteousness of Christ credited to us so that when God sees us, he doesn't see the things that we've done. He sees the work that Christ has done in us. That's what, that's what God sees. There is no neutrality. There is no, um, that's a nice story. I tell kids all the time, if the answer's not yes, it's no. <laughs> Even if it's not right now, it's no, comma, not right now. <laughs> there is no neutrality. Neutrality is a myth, unless you're Sweden, I guess. It's a myth. There's no, uh, it's either, yes, I love Jesus, or no, I don't. And Jesus is calling you, he is commanding you to repent and believe the gospel. That's the command before all people, is to repent and believe the gospel. So, if you do not know that today, um, there's deacons around. Anybody, any of them will be glad to talk to you about it. Uh, I'll be down here, I'll be so glad to talk to you about it. I'll tell you about what a wonderful, mighty Savior has done for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.